this is not the first time you've seen this book. That's great, because we're continuing in our series. Let me just get myself organised here. Continuing in our series, Gospel-Shaped Work. And uh, for the last couple of weeks, the topic has been created to work. We saw that God is a worker who created us to be workers too. That work is good and it involves creation, helping to build society. It involves collaboration, working with God and with each other, and also cultivation, contributing to the world. All sounds very good, but we've got a problem. As we all know, work doesn't always work out, does it? It's not always fulfilling, but can sometimes be exceedingly frustrating. Not necessarily pleasant at times, but painful. Not always easy, sometimes jolly exhausting. Which brings us to the topic for today and also for next Sunday, and that is work and the fall. Pretty exciting stuff, isn't it? <laughs> I, can, I can see yeah, got people jumping out of their seats with this topic, work and the fall. Um, and we're going to be concentrating on Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 to 9. So if you have a Bible with you or have access to a Bible, it would be good to turn to Genesis chapter 11 and verse 1. Now the book of Genesis starts with God creating the heavens and the earth. It ends, though, with Joseph dying and being put in a coffin in Egypt. So it starts with life and ends with death. Obviously, something happened, and that something is known as the fall. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve rebelled against God, and that had disastrous consequences. All the harmonious relationships that God had established were disrupted. Creation was thrown into disorder and there were chaotic effects and that effect affected work. So Genesis 3 is actually the focus of the DVDs next Sunday but today we're looking at Genesis 11 and so these verses um, I guess show they highlight the fall and its shadow over uh, work which the Lord does see and he does deal with. So let's read these verses. Genesis 11, starting at verse 1. We're going through to verse 9, and today I'm actually using the ESV, the English Standard Version. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they, all, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord disperse them 
over the face of all the earth. Let's just pray and then we'll keep going. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the men and women who have made it available to us in our language. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit, which guides us into the truth. We pray that you might help us today to understand what you want to say, that we might have listening hearts, listening ears. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It was bigger, it was better, it was stronger, it was superior, it was unsinkable. You know what I'm talking about? The Titanic. Someone, uh, there was a deckhand who claimed God himself could not sink this ship. After striking an iceberg, the Titanic sunk in two hours and 40 minutes. More than 1,500 people died. Tragically, they learnt the hard way. They weren't as good as they thought they were. It was sinkable. It's a human thing, isn't it? This side of the fall... We can tend to think we are pretty good. With our clever ingenuity, we can solve problems. Our technological advancements improve society. And with our social progression, there's nothing holding us back. We can take destiny into our own hands. It's called human autonomy. Being self-ruling and self-reliant, self-promoting, self-sufficient, self-confident, and its tentacles insidiously reach into all areas of life, every nook and cranny of life. But you know, human autonomy does not impress God, and it doesn't escape his attention either. As these verses tell us, the Lord comes down to see man's work, and he intervenes. There are only nine verses that we're concentrating on, but they pack a powerful punch. And so to get to the heart of it, it's actually very helpful to see how this passage is put, to, uh, yeah, put together, to consider its structure. Now, I know this is something that speakers don't often do, because it can be pretty hard work trying to explain this, but I'm, I'm going to have a go, because it is very important to understand the structure of these nine verses. You see, they weren't written haphazardly. Rather, inspired by the Holy Spirit, it seems that Moses, um, who most people think wrote this book, it seems that he took great care, a lot of care and a lot of attention in writing these nine verses. So let me try and explain the structure. Starting from the end, so the, 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 the start and the, the end, um, the first two verses and the last two verses are narrative. They're, a, they're in a historical account. You can't see that on the screen. It's not necessarily coming up. So verses 1 and 2 is about the people settling, and verses 8 and 9, the Lord is dispersing them. And then coming in, um, from each end, the next two verses are discourse, they're talking. Verses 3 to 4, the people said, let us. You hear that a number of times. And in verses 6 to 7, the Lord also says, let us. And then in the middle, we have verse 5. So this is actually the central point of all the verses. It is the hinge on which everything turns in this passage. I know people can draw that structure different ways. I've done it so it sort of looks a bit like a towel. But verse 5 is the critical uh, point of all these verses. And what it says is this, verse 5, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. The Lord came down to see. Now, 
this doesn't mean that uh, the Lord didn't actually know beforehand what people were doing. It doesn't mean that he's short-sighted. You see, that's why he had to come down to see what was going on. It doesn't mean that. God knows everything. That's 1 John 3.20. It says the Lord came down as a way of putting down man. Because, you see, in certain respects, from a human perspective, verses 1 to 4 actually describe man's finest hour. There was unity, one language, the same words. There was one vision, the same goal. There was unity. There was ingenuity. You know, there wasn't stone back in ancient Mesopotamia, but the people were clever, and they were inventive. They made bricks. So unity, we've got ingenuity, and we've got plenty of industry, don't we? A hive of it. They were building a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. You could say this was the height of man's excellence. This was the pinnacle of human brilliance. This was really the summit of man's eminence, and the Lord had to come down to see it. Putting down people here. So lest we forget, we are creatures. God is the creator. He is bigger. He is better. He is stronger. He is superior. He is incomparable. We need to always remember this. Isaiah 40 verse 22 says, He sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like, does anyone know the rest of the verse? Are like grasshoppers. That uh, chapter also says, To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. This is God. He is incomparable, and this is the one we are called to revere. He knows what's going on, and we should be humble before him. As great as we think we are with all our human achievements, you know, the Lord is exceedingly superior. He has to come down to see them. So, what did the Lord see? Well, he didn't just see people hopping around like grasshoppers, busily jumping around. He also saw apostasy. The people had rejected God and they were involved in false worship. I picked this up particularly from verse 4 which says, Come, they said, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Now that tower with its top in the heavens is common, uh, commonly believed to be a temple tower known as a ziggurat. That's not cigarette, that's ziggurat. And uh, apparently they're found throughout the uh, area of ancient Mesopotamia. I've got a quote for you from uh, Professor Alan Ross. This is in the Bible Knowledge Commentary, and he says, The ziggurat, the step-like tower believed to have been first erected in Babylon, was said to have its top in the heavens. This artificial a mountain became the center of worship in the city, it was a miniature te and there was a miniature temple at the top of the tower. So it appears these people weren't just building a tower to get to the top and enjoy the view. They were building it as part of their fake worship, to worship fake gods. It was an expression, in other words, of flagrant idolatry. That's part of what the Lord saw. What else did he see? He also saw arrogance. Verse 4 continues. They, the people said, let us make a name for ourselves. It was all about them. They craved recognition. They desired fame. They wanted honor. All for themselves. 
was like a rooster, I, the, the saying of a rooster who um, used to think the sun would ro- had risen to hear it crow. That's ego. And, you know, left to its own devices, this egotistical uh, view, this um, conceit, this vanity knows no bounds. They were, content- they were um, focused, they were committed to building a city and a tower so that they could make a name for themselves. They, the Lord saw arrogance. And he also saw anxiety. Verse 4 finishes, Lest we, de- we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. You see, they didn't want to spread out in the earth. They wanted to congregate in a city. It seems they were worried about being scattered. Perhaps they thought there was safety in numbers. They wanted the refuge and the security of a city. They didn't want the risks and the uncertainty of remoter places. But in the context, that actually wasn't God's plan. See, he wanted the people to keep migrating and to fill the earth. Back in Genesis 1:28, God blessed um, Adam and Eve, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, multiply and fill the earth. After the flood, Genesis 9.1, God blessed Noah and his sons and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But the people weren't trying to uh, live God's way. They'd rejected God. They were trying to live life their own way without him. They were apostate, they were arrogant and they were also anxious. That's a bit of a, a photo of mankind, isn't it? This side of the fall. We can be very mixed up creatures. Have you ever noticed that? We like to think we're so self-sufficient, we're so sophisticated, and at the same time, we can be scared. Independent, important, and also unstable. Full, free. We're free of everything. We have liberty, we're full of ourselves, and yet we can be so fragile. That's man, this side of the fall. Well, what did God do when he saw what was going on? He didn't just turn a blind eye, he intervened, and really... This passage is a passage, a passage of judgment. The Lord intervened with judgment. Verse 6 says, And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they, all have, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Now, that is not God saying that if people are united, people can do whatever they want. Um, they'll have, they can achieve the impossible. God's not saying that here. We are limited creatures. We have, inf- uh, we have finite um, power. We don't have infinite power like God. Verse 6 is actually in the context of judging sin. God's, what God's saying here is that when united in sin, there is no limit to how far people will go. It's true, isn't it? The NIV study Bible notes put it this way, if the whole human race remained united in the proud attempt to take its destiny into its own hands and by its man-centered efforts to seize the reins of history, there would be no limit to its unrestrained rebellion against God. And so the Lord intervened. To keep the intensity, to keep the extent of man's rebellion um, in check, God confused their language and he scattered them. Verses 7 to 9 say, Come, let us, go, <clears throat> let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not be under, 
so that they may not understand one another's speech. Verse 8. All right, big fella, you make him all line belong all brook na bout. Na all he go stop. Na bout long all got a hop long ground. Na all he no more walk in this blood town. You fly savvy? I think one plan Mary is sitting along happy. I'm savvy, yeah. I'm straight Madonna. Verse 8 says, So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. All he called him this town, Babel, long one him. Big fella, he fouling talk place, long all this people. Now, Amy broke him line, long all. Now, all he go, Nabout, Nabout, long all got a hop, long ground. John's, John's with me too, I think. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. And interestingly, in being scattered, the people were actually filling the earth, just as God had planned. You see, God's plan always prevails. If not with man's obedience, God's plan will prevail, despite man's disobedience. And, you know, in the process, everything that man had proposed in verses 1 to 4 God disposed of in verses 6 to 9. And let me concentrate on the name of this city. Did you notice the name? Verse 9 says it was called Babel. Now, I know people say other things like Babel, uh, Babel. Um, I'm calling it Babel. There's a reason for that which we're coming to. But verse 9 says it was called Babel because there, was, there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And Babel is the word for Babylon. It means gateway to God. And it sounds like the word, the Hebrew word, Balel. That's why I'm calling it Babel, because it sounds like the word Balel, which is the Hebrew word for confused. So you see, the author here is actually making fun of the city. Uh, let me get at it another way. I used to live in Christchurch. For three years, I lived in Christchurch, which is in the South Island of New Zealand. And our house was in the suburb of Prebleton. Has anyone lived in Christchurch, by the way? I'm very pleased to hear that because I'm about to insult some people in Christchurch. But we lived in the suburb of Prebleton. And, you know, back then, it was not the most prestigious suburb. I think the mushroom factory might have had something to do with it. You know what? Mushrooms grow in, don't you? Manure. And uh, it was actually after my parents had bought the house and we moved in that we first smelt it. Uh, Prebleton was known for its mushroom factory, which we found out after we moved in. Well, of course, there are lots of other uh, suburbs in Christchurch, such as Fendleton. Now, let me tell you, Fendleton is a little bit different to Prebleton. Fendleton did not have a mushroom factory, um, but it did have some very special people. And if you were ever uh, privileged enough to be graced with their presence, no doubt someone from Fendleton would be uh, willing to correct you and, and tell you that Fendleton is not pronounced that way. It's not Fendleton, it's Fendleton. Very special people there, it's Fendleton. Well, it didn't take us a load as long living in Prebleton to catch on. And so amongst ourselves, we would jokingly call Prebleton Prebolton. Well, unfortunately, that didn't really change the smell. But I tell you what, we had great fun taking the mickey out of those precious people in Fendleton. Or, I mean, Fendleton. And, you know, that joke amongst ourselves, there's something like that happening here. You see, Babylonians, uh, the author's saying, 
you may call the city Babel, but it's actually Balel. It's not gateway to God, it's confusion. Or as Ralph Davis puts it, you can call it Godberg, but it's really Chaosville. And that's, you know, the case with man-made religions, isn't it? Whatever name you want to call them, ultimately, they are mixed up confusion. And so, the passage ends. It doesn't really finish on a positive note, does it? It's work and the fall. But, thankfully, that is not the end of the chapter. That's not the end of the Bible. So, let me give you some good news. If you've got your Bible there, look at the very next verse. Verse 10. These are the generations of Shem. Isn't that fantastic news? Why, you may say. That's a good question. Because if you keep reading, you'll see that Shem's descendants included, who can tell me? Abraham. Yeah, Abraham. And at the start of chapter 12, the Lord intervenes again, and he makes an astounding promise. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 4, I say this. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. That's a little bit different to the people in Genesis 11, isn't it? If they had decided to build a city, but here the Lord called Abram out of a city. They wanted to settle. The Lord told Abram to separate. They aspired to make a name for themselves. But here the Lord said he would, he would make Abram's name great. They tried to make um, themselves safe, but it was the Lord who promised Abram he'd keep him safe. They disobeyed God and they were judged. But here we see Abram obeyed God and he was blessed. The Lord intervenes again with blessing. And you know, the Lord kept his promise as he always does. And through Abram, there is blessing today, isn't there? Why? Because Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob, also known as Israel. Israel had 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. And from those people came the greatest man who has ever come. And his name is Jesus. Again, the Lord intervened. I want to read a couple of verses in John chapter 6 and verses, uh, verse 38, yeah, and verse 40. And in these two verses, Jesus said something astonishing. This is what he said. John, uh, Jesus' words, John 6, 38. He said, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Verse 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son, that is Jesus, the Son of God, and believes in him, should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. That's good news, isn't it? This is good news. And so we see, yes, the fall corrupted creation, including work, but there is hope. There is a Lord who came down. He came down to see, and you know, he also came down 
to save. And when you turn to Jesus, when you believe in Him, He gives you eternal life, which is knowing the true, the only true God forever. And you know, by His Spirit, over time, He changes you from the inside out to be like Jesus. And this must affect your work. It cannot leave you unchanged. If you're a true believer, this must affect your work. This is what we've been hammering on a little bit in basic youth. The gospel, Jesus, the good news of Jesus affects our behavior. It has to. Let me give you just one verse about how this relates to this topic of work. Colossians 3, 23 to 24 says this, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So forget about building your own kingdom. Forget about trying to make a name for yourself. Don't worship money. Don't worship other idols. Be humble. Don't be anxious. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And that's the case in whatever you do, whether you're at school, at university, whether you're out of school, whether you get paid work, whether you don't have paid work, whether you're retired. In whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord. We are to serve the Lord Christ. That puts a different perspective on work, doesn't it? Let me finish with um, a brief story about Violet Jessup probably haven't heard of her. She was working on a luxury ship named Olympic when it collided with another ship. It was a British warship that it collided with. Thankfully, there were no fatalities, uh, fatalities, and the ship actually made it back to port without sinking. It was a disturbing event, but it didn't put her off uh, working on ships. Seven months later, she was working on the Titanic when it hit the iceberg and it sunk. As the ship was going down, She was ordered onto a lifeboat, and so she survived. Four years later, she was on board a hospital ship called Britannic when it exploded. They think it hit a a German mine. It just exploded. It sank within an hour, and it killed 30 people. She suffered a traumatic head injury. She was in a lifeboat. She had to jump out because the lifeboat was being sucked by the propellers under the boat, and in the process, I think she might have struck her head on the propeller or something like that, And she uh, was in the water with this traumatic head injury, but she survived. And believe it or not, four years later, she actually went back to work on ships. And she worked on ships for another 30 years. They called her Miss Unsinkable. You know, her work didn't always work out. Traumatic events that for anyone else was probably very good reason to stop working on ships, but she kept at it. And yes, we acknowledge there are problems, there are difficulties, there are frustrations with work, this side of the fall, and that won't change. But there is also great encouragement, isn't there? There's great encouragement to not let those things sink you. There is a God. He is active and He is involved in this world. The Lord came down and, you know, He is coming again. And that's a great reason, that's a great reason to work heartily 
Whatever you do, as Christians, we work, we serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the reality of it. It is so real. It deals with where we're at. Father, we thank you that while you are a God who is so much more majestic, so much more superior, so much more exalted than we can even conceive, Father, we thank you that you are a God who comes down, that you are active, that you are involved in this world. You want to be involved in our lives. Father, we thank you that you sent your son Jesus, that through him our sins can be forgiven. We can call you Father. We can be adopted into your family forever. Your spirit comes to live within us. Father, we thank you for the privileges and the blessings we enjoy, all undeserved. We thank you for the opportunities you give us to help other people, for the work you give us to advance your kingdom. Please forgive us when we put ourselves first. Please remind us and encourage us. Help us to help each other, to put you first, to build your kingdom, because that is the only kingdom that will ultimately stand. We pray this, not for our own sake, but for Jesus' name. Amen. God, with our uh, 